Greg Rubel of Living Streams Community Church in McCordsville, Indiana. We want to thank you for your interest in God's Word and this message. We pray that God puts it into your heart. I read this week that um, 77% of all U.S. adults own one of these. Now, that's kind of remarkable when you think about it, because uh, this is only about 12 years old this, this coming summer. So that's a lot of people that have one of these. And, and these can get us into a lot of trouble. But the trouble is they're so doggone good at helping us stay connected and know what's going on in our life. I mean, every time you install an app on this, it always asks you the question, is it okay to send you notifications? You know, so, you know, so severe weather, uh, traffic problem, uh, your heart rate's getting too high. You know, you, you want, you want to know any of that, your phone can tell you with a notification. Now, on, on my phone, I turn off most of my notifications because I don't want to spend my life on my phone. And when it, it's buzzing at me, it's really hard, you know, not to, to pick it up and look at it and see what it wants. Um, but there is one notification that I've kept on. And it is, uh, it is called the screen time report. So this was kind of new with the last iOS. And so I kept it on. And I get a notification every Sunday morning that tells me how many, how many hours a day I spent on my phone in the last seven days. And, and it's kind of, and where I spent it. And so if I look at my screen time today, I can confess to you that I'm down 32% from last week. I spent two hours and 33 minutes per day on my phone this past week. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I picked it up 343 times last week, 49 times per day. 76 of those were messages, 59 were email. Oh, I played games way too much. <laughs> uh, I got 151 noti- notifications last week, 22 of 22 per day. So it was bothering me 22 times a day. Now, if you sent me a message, you weren't bothering me, but my phone was was bothering me. Well, listen, Jesus, he's here at the end of the day of questions. He's gone through this examination in Luke 20. And he's coming coming to the end of it. And, and so he's got one more question to answer. And he uh, then asks another question. And then he gives a warning to his disciples. And in what he does, in his answer, his question, his warning, he's going to be sending us notifications this morning. Notifications for our life with him. So let's start there in Luke 20. And I'm going to just go ahead and read all of it um, this morning. Uh, Luke 27 to 47. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him in a, a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring... Uh, for his brother. 
Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but to, to that, uh, but, to, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equals, equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And in hearing, in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love the greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to... Praise and thank you for the time we get to spend together here this morning uh, to, to lift our hearts to you in worship, to um, lift up your name as our God who is worthy. And as we look at your word today, Lord, we pray that um, our hearts might be good soil for it, that, that, they would, uh, that it would be planted there and bear fruit even today in, in our lives. Lord, you're sending us notifications for our life with you. Help us to receive and respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can take your Bibles and turn to Luke 20 if you want to follow along in there. And Like I say, it's uh, verses uh, 27 to 47. Notifications for life. You know, so getting notifications isn't the hard part. Uh, That's not the only thing that has to happen for them to... To be effective, you know, we, uh, if we don't read the notification, it's like they were never sent. And if we don't respond to the notification, it's, it's, they might as well not have been sent in the first place. So maybe, maybe there's a reply that we need to make. Maybe we need to take an umbrella to work. Maybe we need to stop by the grocery on the way home and get some milk. You know, so we gotta respond. Well today, as we look at these verses, there's three notifications for our life here, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, as we, as we receive them, we'll be able to respond to them in ways that will help us in our life with God and change who we are. The first one is an eternity notification. And so they're gonna come at you, so here's the first one. Yeah, just, you guys just got a message from Jesus Christ. He is saying there, there's more than this life. There's more. In verses 27 to 40, a different group of Jews come up to him and uh, they start asking the questions. This group's called the Sadducees. And the main thing you want to know about the Sadducees um, is that they didn't believe in the resurrection. Um, and so just about every time they're mentioned in Scripture, their, their belief 
that they don't believe in the resurrection is also mentioned as as it's written here in in Luke. It's like every time Sadducees they don't believe in the resurrection. So that kind of gives you this clue. This is a this is a big deal. You think Sadducees sort of sounds like this small sect of Jews, you know, that have this obscure minority position, like the earth is flat, you know, something like that. But actually, the Sadducees were the, the ruling party in the Sanhedrin. They had the majority. And they were the ones with all the money, and they were the, were the ones with all the social status. They, they were aristocrats. And so they were, they were leading the, San, the Sanhedrin, the highest court in the, in the, that the Jews had. And so when you read Jesus' story and you run across the name Caiaphas, who was the high priest who presides over Jesus' trial, he was a Sadducee. And so that's the group that's coming to Jesus. Now, this group, they, they wanted to get Jesus in trouble, but, but not, be, not because they thought he was a false teacher or because they were looking for a political revolutionary. He wasn't turning out to be that way. No, they wanted to get him in trouble because he was disturbing the peace. Because these guys, they wanted to maintain the status quo. Their life was good. They had all the money. They had all the power. They were cooperating with the Roman government so that their lives would be better. That's what they were doing. And so there's no resurrection because this is the life that's important. This is the good life. Now, the question they ask isn't really a question, as they all have been. They've been loaded. And so what they're trying to do is, you know, say, uh, show that the afterlife or, the, or a resurrection would be absurd to think about. And then they give this example. They call on Moses. Uh, they call on this law in the book of Deuteronomy, from Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6. Um, now, the Sadducees only believed that the first five books of the Bible were Scripture, so they didn't look at anything else, uh, just the first five books. So they go to the law of Moses, and they, and they bring up this law that is, if a man dies childless and he has a brother, his brother should marry his widow so that their family line could be preserved in, in Israel. And that was really important. So they make up this hypothetical situation that would never really happen in real life. You know, so there's this man, he dies childless, and his brother marries his widow, and then he dies childless, and that goes on and on until you go through all seven brothers. So then the big question comes is, since she was married to all seven brothers, whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection, in the next life? So Jesus, he gives them an answer in verse 34. He says, during this life, people get married. It's a, it's a thing in this life. But for those that are considered worthy to be part of the next life, marriage isn't going to be a thing. Uh, one of the reasons that marriage exists in this life is for the, the procreation of godly offspring. It's one of the reasons God created marriage. And since people won't die anymore in eternity, uh, there's no need to reproduce. And so marriage isn't necessary. So uh, the people there will have, uh, they'll be like the angels. They will have glorified bodies that never wear out. They will have, they have eternal souls that they'll be called sons of God. So they'll be totally different. They'll be part of, of the resurrection. And then Jesus goes about to the, to the reason, or he goes about proving or disproving to them, or I guess proving to them the resurrection. And he goes to a place in the Bible that they consider uh, scripture, the, you know, First five books of the Bible, he goes to Exodus chapter chapter 3, verse 6, when God spoke to Moses at the burning bush. And God introduced himself as, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And he says, hey, how could, how could he be the God of them if they were dead and gone, if they didn't exist anymore? See, they're alive. 
God, your God is, verse, 30, verse 38, He is not the God of the dead, but He is the God of the living. All live to Him. They're alive in His presence. There's more to this life. There's an eternity notification right here. We're getting it. Now, the Sadducees, they were asking the wrong kind of question based on the knowledge that Jesus had about the next life. And we don't want to do the same thing. We want, to, we want to ask the right kinds of questions. I mean, how many times are we wrestling with questions and the only thing they really have to do with is this life? I mean, it's just kind of natural. You know, we're going to be wrestling with questions because we're living this life. This is, this is what's going on. This is what we're feeling. This is what we're experiencing. So we're going to be wrestling, you know, why did this or that happen to us? You know, uh, 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 here's, a, here's one that we're wrestling with today. Should we build a wall? You know, we're, we're wrestling with that, right? <laughs> How much do I need to retire on? What do I need to do to be successful? Who should I marry? What should my job be? What should my career be? Are the Colts going to be any good next year? Right? We, we, we have all these questions floating around in our minds. We battle that. It's constantly going on. We've just received an eternity notification. There's more than this life. How do we respond? Well, you start by asking some right questions. Now, Jesus said that the people who will be part of the next life will be those deemed worthy to be a part of it. Now, that ought to stir a question worth asking, considering there's more than this life. Am I worthy? Am I worthy to go on to the next life and live forever in the presence of God? Now, if you know anything about... Our God, you know that the answer to that question is, no, I am not. There's no way I'm worthy to live in the presence of a a holy, righteous, perfect, loving, full of justice and mercy, Heavenly Father. There's no way. There's no way I should even knock on the throne room door. I'm not worthy. But you know, everybody doesn't answer that question that way. When they, when they hear that question, am I worthy? They answer, well, I don't know. I don't know if I'm worthy. I, I'm, I'm trying to be. I, I hope I am. I'm, I'm doing some good. You know, I, I think when I see, when I see God, you know, He's gonna be, He's gonna be, uh, kind to me and He's gonna look at the good and the bad and, and you know, I, I'm hoping that he, he gets me in. He lets me into to the next life. I hope I'm worthy. We know that answer isn't going to get you past the gates. It's not going to get you in. We are not the ones who can make ourselves worthy. Only Jesus is the one who can do that because He is the only one who ever was worthy. So, how do you answer this question? Am I worthy? You say, I don't know. I'm trying to be. Or is it no? I am not worthy. But I know the one who who is. And I'm counting on his worthiness to get me through. All my eggs are in the second Corinthians chapter five, verse twenty one basket. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How do you answer? Am I worthy? Eternity is coming. 
it's real. We just got this notification from somebody who knows. How do you answer? Here's another question might pop up that's important. If marriage is temporary, why is it so important? Well, I already mentioned one reason, procreation. God wanted children. He wanted children to be born in a family structure with a mom and a dad. That was his idea. Second reason that it's important now is proclamation. Proclamation. When we receive an eternity and an notification in our life and we get that there's more to this life, then our marriage takes on a new purpose. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So it's telling us that our marriages um, have a purpose beyond you know, just us being happy. Us getting along, us, us creating a family and having children. Making a positive impact on this life. No, our marriages are meant to proclaim gospel love. Husbands giving up their lives for their wives so that they might be beautiful and grow and flourish even when they're not lovable. And wives respecting your husbands when they don't deserve respect because they've been sitting on the couch all week not doing a stinking thing around the house. Somebody is doing that. (laughs) See, that's gospel love. That's gospel love. And that's the kind of love that our marriages are supposed to reflect to the world. Because that's the only kind of love that will change the world. Gospel love. Now, for some, hearing that marriage is temporary is going to make you feel a little sad. Because you can't imagine, you know, life without the one you said, I do to. You know, it's going good and that's natural and that's good and that's right. And that means you're working hard at loving. You are investing in your marriage. Keep doing it. But the life that we're headed to is going to be so different. So different than this life. We're going to know each other. We're going to love each other. But all of our happiness, all of our satisfaction, all of the things... That, that fill us up are going to be found in Jesus. And it's hard to think about what that feels like, what that looks like, but the, the truth is, we are not going to miss this life at all. Your best memories will not matter because you're experiencing your best life there. And it's going to blow away anything that you've experienced here. You will not miss your marriage at all. At all. You will not even miss the people that you are crying for right now who you think aren't going to be there when you're there and they're not there. You won't even cry over them not being there. Revelation 21 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. It's going to be good. Can't even hardly imagine what that's like, can we? There's more. There's more. Now, for some of you, hearing that marriage is temporary might make you kind of glad. You know, maybe it's a struggle. Or maybe it's not at all, because you're single. And you know, in, in the church and in, in our world today, there's a big emphasis on marriage. 
and, you know, let's get married, let's have children, um, you know, that's like, you know, in the church can be put up there as, as kind of an idol. And uh, with the attack on marriage in our country, changing the definition, there's an emphasis to defend it. And that's important. You know, it's, it's, it's right to do that. But listen, if you're, if you're not married or you're struggling in marriage, let this eternity notification encourage you that it's not always going to be this way. It's all going to be made right. It's all going to be made good. There's more. There's more. And one last question from this notification. Where's the focus of my life? What am I dreaming about? You know, what, what am I looking forward to? What am I trying to achieve? Who am I living for? What am I trying to be? Eternity is a, is a really long time. You know, you can't even define it that way. You know, if we, when we're done with this life, it's like we just opened the book and started reading the first page. When eternity's coming. And so since that's the case, this is, we've got this notification from Jesus that there's a lot more coming and it's going to be all different. How should we focus our life right now? On eternal things. Now Jesus, he said, that eternal life in John 17, 3, he defined it for us. He said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So our lives as believers and followers of Jesus, of the one who makes us worthy, ought to have this all-encompassing purpose of knowing him, knowing Jesus in this life as best we can. And there's so many things we can just waste our life on. That mean nothing, they're just going to burn up. So much energy and effort put into having a great life and you just have to keep putting in that energy and effort because the good here does not satisfy. And it's just a like a mouse on a wheel going round and round. Get off the wheel. Don't waste your life spending it like that. You know, the Bible tells us that the way we spend our life here has an impact on the way we will experience it in the next, in the next life. So knowing Jesus, it ought to be at the top of your bucket list. And then right under that, ought to be making Him known. Making Him known. Since we've got this notification from the One who makes us worthy. And no one else will be able to do that. And no one's going to be able to be part of the next life unless they know the one who makes us worthy. How much of our lives should be spent making Jesus known to people? How much? I got another picture to show you from the India trip. This is at a church in Mumbai where Pastor Kwan served as a pastor. And uh, we, went, we went in and um, he introduced us to this woman. Now, I don't remember her name, and I probably couldn't pronounce it, even if uh, I could remember it, but I do remember her story. Um, Pastor McQuan went there and met her, and um, she had had a job in the church for 45 years sweeping the floors. So she had that. Um, she had a place to stay. She was working every day amongst the church people, keeping things tidy. And when Pastor got there, he found out that she wasn't a believer. 
And so not one time in 45 years had anyone ever asked her about Jesus. They, they gave her a place to stay. They gave her a home. They gave her food. They, they gave her a job. But they never gave her a chance to believe. Macquan and Roshan led her to the Lord not long after they arrived there in 1998. And when she came out from, from behind, you know, the, the front of the sanctuary, she just had the light of life shining from her face. It was just beautiful. And then she, you know, joined us in, in prayer, praying for the church, praying for some families that needed it. Knowing what we know about eternity. Knowing who we know that makes us worthy. How can we not make him known to people around us? You know, this past Tuesday, I was uh, sitting here with Pastor Shane and we watched a, uh, a Billy Graham sermon from 1957. And he was preaching away, you know, and we're getting inspired. Um, but he said something and it just caused me to, to wonder. Because like what we, what we teach in the church in America is, um, you know, that, that if we're a Christian and we're born again, then people are going to notice that when we go out there in the dark. And so go shine your light. Go be a witness for Jesus. Go love on people. And then eventually they're going to come your way and say, hey, what's different about you? And I've been, you know, I... I, I teach that to you guys, and I believe that. But I've been thinking lately, you know, I don't think that's ever happened to me one time. And so it's got me kind of wondering, does it happen at all? Are we making a dent? And, you know, it's just like sales. <laughs> you know, can't, can't you get, you follow me? Just like sales. You know, when I was selling for our business, I had a 95% close rate. Because they always asked me to come to their place and, and tell them about us. It was a referral kind of a selling. They opened the door. Hey, come in. Tell us, tell us about your business. You know, cold calling's a lot harder. We just knock on a door and nobody knows, you know. Nobody knows you. That's a lot harder kind of selling. I was not brave enough to do that. Isn't this, isn't this kind of the same thing? We're sort of waiting for referrals from God to bring people to our doorstep so who say, hey, I, I want to know about Jesus. Does it happen? It doesn't. So what does that mean for us? It means we got to be a little more intentional. We know eternity's coming. It's a lot longer than we know the one who gets us in, the only one who makes us worthy. We've got to learn how to bridge the gap between people we don't know and be able to share Christ with them. We've got to be able to be praying about that. So this life focus, what should it be? Know Jesus and make him known based on what, but based on what we know in eternity. Now how do we start? How do we start? Well, the next notification. Just do the next notification. It's from Jesus. There it is. Jesus is sending an identity notification. 
the examination is over. The Sadducees are impressed with how Jesus has spoken, or the scribes and the Sadducees. And that's kind of incredibly amazing if you go read this interchange in Matthew, because Jesus is a lot more blunt there. You know, the Sadducees ask the question, and, and he says, uh, well, you're wrong. <laughs> I mean, just, you're wrong. You guys are wrong. Because you don't know God's word and you don't believe in the power of God. That's what he says. And then at the end of this conversation, they go, Wow, dude, you are amazing. You spoke good. So, uh, you know, I don't know how you do that, but I'd like to be able to do that. So, he asks the most important question. Jesus does. He asks the most important question that could ever be asked. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? He says, how can people say that Christ is the son of David? Now, it was common knowledge back in the day that the Christ, which is another word for Messiah, he was going to come from the line of David. He was promised to David that, it was promised to David that a son would, would establish his kingdom forever. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and verse 16. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom, and your house and your kingdom <clears throat> shall be made Sure, forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So there's the promise to David that one of his sons down the line was going to sit on the throne forever. So it's common knowledge. Trouble is, um, well, Jesus, he was in that line. He was in the line of David. And so um, he fulfills that promise. Uh, but he's, he was more than just the son of a man. He had to be, because only God could be able to do what needed to be done to save people from their sins. So the Messiah needed to be more than a man. So Jesus points to this riddle, really, in, in the Psalms, written by David, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So the Psalm starts right off with this conversation between the Lord, all caps, which means Yahweh, the, the Lord God Almighty. So the Lord said to my Lord, Adonai, lowercase Lord, kind of a common name for anybody who was in authority in that time. But, but when you read that in the context of the psalm, Psalm 110, um, it's referring to the Messiah. As everybody agreed that Psalm 110 was a messianic psalm, that it pointed to the coming Christ. And so Jesus is saying, how can the Messiah be just David's son if David... The greatest king of all time referred to him as my Lord. First of all, a father would never refer to a son as his Lord, and a king would never refer to anyone as his Lord, unless Jesus was more than just David's son. So this is an identity notification. An identity notification. Who is Jesus? And so we should try to answer that question. How would you answer? Who is Jesus? Okay, we're going to watch a video. And some people on the street in the UK, so we get all this British accent stuff. Um, so it's kind of cool. But uh, here's how they answered the question, who is Jesus? Uh, there's, you know, watch that. I just totally cried. I, I just, you know, I, I'm like, most of them didn't know. Hey, how, how could they not know? I mean, he's a man, he's a friend, messenger, a famous bloke from Bethlehem, a legend, a prophet, an example to follow. Some said, I don't know him, I don't know who he is. Some said, I know him, but I don't believe in him. 
You know, we've, re- we've received an identity notification from Jesus Christ with a call to answer the question, who, who, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Now, only a few people in the world will actually believe that Jesus didn't exist at all. You know, that he was just made up. Only a few people. Most people agree that Jesus was a historical figure. He walked the earth. Josephus talked about him, you know, so you know, we got outside Bible evidence that Jesus was real. Most people concede that. The big question is, was he God? And you can go all over the Bible and find lots of evidence for that belief. He claimed to be God in John chapter 8, verse 58. He called himself equal with God in chapter 5, John 5 and John 10. He claimed to have the authority of God to judge the nations and raise people from the dead and forgive sins. He showed the power of God in his ministry while he walked the earth, um, healing all the diseases and controlling the weather and answering people's prayers and commanding demons. So you can go there and you can find lots of support for that. Uh, But the greatest proof of Jesus' divinity that he was God was his resurrection. And he rose from the grave. Now, I can't go into all the arguments against that, like, you know, he wasn't really dead when he went in the tomb, or the disciples did steal his body, um, you know, those kind of things. But I want to give you just a few that are for the resurrection. The first one is, nobody knows where the grave is. Nobody knows where it is. If you go to Israel, my mother-in-law just went to Israel, and she got to go to the, the tomb. Uh, but it, they, don't, they don't say, this is Jesus' tomb. It's just a tomb like Jesus would have been buried in, cut out of stone in a garden. They don't know where the tomb is. Why? Because it's irrelevant. Because he's not there. We only remember the graves when they mark the remains of someone who's there. Did you know that you can visit the Prophet Muhammad's grave? It's in Medina, Saudi Arabia. Did you know you can visit the grave of Buddha in India? Why can't we visit Jesus' grave? Because he is risen. Not there. So that's one reason. Another reason to support the resurrection was that all the disciples believed they saw Jesus after he rose from the grave. And they proved that out by changing the way they worshipped their entire lives as Jews. They went from worshipping on Saturday to worshipping on Sunday, the day that Jesus rose from the grave. They started to practice the Lord's Supper, which proclaimed the Lord's death. Until he comes again, they, did, they made it a regular practice because they believed he was alive and he said he was coming back. And they practiced the, the uh, sacrament of baptism that symbolized your life, death, and resurrection. So they believed all that. And they practiced all that. And they did it until they were killed for doing that. They all died believing that Jesus rose from the grave. Never one time did anyone waver in that. That tells you something about the resurrection. So why is the question over Jesus' divinity? Why is this question so important to our faith? Why does it matter? Well, the most important reason was if Jesus wasn't God, there would be no way that he could die for the death or for the sins of all mankind. First uh, John 2, 2 says, He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. Only God could pay that kind of debt. And so Jesus had to be God to be able to pay our debt, and he had to be a man in order to be able to die. 
And so his deity is why he said he was the only way to salvation. His deity is why he proclaimed, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. So how do you answer the question, who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? Who is he? Now, if you say he's the son of God who takes away the sin of the world, that's good, but that's not good enough. Because even the demons believe he is God. This has got to be a personal thing. Something that's personal in your own heart. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So getting your head convinced that Jesus is God is, is helpful, but getting your heart convinced is when everything changes, when everything becomes real, when everything becomes secure in your future. Does your heart believe that Jesus is God, that He is your God, that He died for your sins? Now, that's a, maybe a hard question to, to answer for some of you. Um, depending on how you responded to that, how do you know if you've responded to the identity notification um, in, in the way that leads to life? Well, let's go to the next one. It, it can help you. It can help you. No. It's a love notification. Here it is. Where's the love? Message from Jesus Christ. Where is the love? After he asks his question about his identity, he turns to his disciples and starts speaking a warning. He's doing it in public. Watch out. Watch out for these guys that you're looking up to. What's going on on the outside of their life is not what is going on on the inside of them. They are lovers of self. They are lovers of money. They love the love and honor and praise of man. They parade around in public all dressed in fancy clothes wanting to be looked at. They expect special treatment at the synagogue. They're offended if they don't get the seat of honor at a wedding. They pray for the publicity of it, not for the piety. Behind the scenes, they're taking advantage of widows, taking their money as they handle their estates and assets. They are lovers of self and lovers of money. Getting ministry totally backwards. They're supposed to be the shepherds of Israel. They're supposed to be the one that's taking care of the weak, you know, watching out for the vulnerable and protecting them. And in fact, they're abusing them for their own gain. Jesus called it devouring widows. Now, widows were the most vulnerable people in their society. They didn't have any protection anymore. Uh, They had no income. All they had was what was left in the estate. And many times that was very little. And God gives widows kind of special attention in His Word. He has a heart for those that are low and vulnerable and weak. He said in James 1.27, Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. So it's no accident that Jesus brings widows up when he's warning his disciples. There would be no greater injustice that he could point to than to say these guys are devouring widows. Now why? Why would they be that way? Who would be so bad that they would harm people in such low places? Why do they act this way? Because the greatest love in their life was self. It was self. And self is a really sneaky idol in our life. 
Most people don't believe that they are self-centered or selfish. But they can spot it in other people. You know, they can spot that in other people and they really don't like it. But it is very common among us. The idol of self. You know, social media is a place today where the idol of self gets fed Every day. In the last five years, it's estimated that we have taken 93 million selfies per day. (coughs) Per day. And most of those get posted to social media. And so that's telling us that we like to look at ourselves. And we like other people to look at us. Because it feels good to be liked, it feels good to be loved. It feels good to be admired. It feels so good. Jesus is like, watch out for that feeling. Pay attention to that. Because if you start living your life to feed that feeling, feeding the idol of self to feel good, then that can lead to some really bad behavior, like harming widows. So where is the love in your life? Where's the love? Dee Breston wrote a book called Idle Lies. And she said, idols can't be removed. They have to be replaced. Have to be replaced. And so since we're probably not going to be able to go, well, man, I'm worshiping the idols of self today because it's just, you know, it's too hard to to point out. um, Let's just assume it's a problem for us. And I think it's a good assumption. Jesus is telling his disciples, watch out for this. So how do we replace the idol of self and with what do we replace it? Well, you replace it with Jesus and you start serving widows. Since Jesus told us eternity's coming, since he is the only one who opens the door for us by making us worthy with his worthiness, since he is God who left heaven, came to this earth, lived our lives, loved us, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the grave, proving it all, how Now shall we live loving God and loving people. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. And so we replace the idol of self with the living God, the one who defeated death, the one who brings life into our life, Jesus Christ. And we begin to live our life unto Him. We live our life for Him. And so we let, we let His voice be the one voice that we want to hear more than anybody else's. And we do what's necessary to be able to hear that. We let His love be the one we most want to feel every day. We let, we let His glory be the one that, the glory that's growing in the world more than anybody else's. We, we let His name be the one that is growing in fame, not ours. And on and on it goes. When you put Jesus first, it sets self aside and then he begins to lead you in the way of love. His kind of love. Gospel love. Sacrificial love. So where's the love? Jean-Tel Franklin's mother lost her battle with cancer on February 7th, 2009, so it was no surprise to anyone that he didn't want to show up to his basketball game to play that day. He played for the Milwaukee Madison High School basketball team, and they were playing DeKalb High School. But to everyone's surprise, he showed up midway through the second quarter, uniform on, ready to play. 
problem was his name hadn't been entered in the scorebook at the beginning of the game. And so if they let him onto the floor, it was going to be a technical foul against his team and DeKalb would get two free throws. So the two coaches met with the referee in the midcourt and they tried to ask him, hey, can you bend the rules a little bit here? Can you, you know, explain the situation? And, and the referee was sympathetic, but he said, we, we, we can't bend the rules. I know what's going on. I know it's terrible, but we just can't do it. And then something special happened. When the referee wouldn't budge, the Cowboys star player, Darius McNeil, volunteered to shoot the free throws. And so he goes out and he steps to the line. He sets his feet there. The referee gives him the, gives him the ball. But instead of shooting a perfect free throw, he just puts a little two-footer out there and lets it roll out of bounds. Referee grabbed the ball, gave him the ball for the second shot. He did the same thing, a little two-footer, rolled out of bounds. Crowd erupted, standing ovation. McNeil's team went on to lose the game. And afterward, when they interviewed him for the paper, he said, I did it for the guy who lost his mom. It was the right thing to do. Now, I kind of thought, you know, that's not a bad picture of the kind of love we want to see flowing from our lives. You know, we're going to be missing some free throws on purpose for the betterment and benefit of other people. And in the unlikely event that we will get interviewed by the newspaper for doing so, we will say something like, I did it for the guy who lost his life so I could live It's how I can show him that I love him by following in his footsteps. So where's the love? Let's have our worship team come back up. So we've got some notifications. Eternity notification. Now remember, these are from Jesus, right? He knows there's more. More than this life. How do we live? Knowing He makes us worthy. The identity notification. Jesus is the Son of God. Do we believe that personally? Has He come into our life? Has He changed our life? Has He fundamentally changed the way we live our life from feeding self to following the Savior? Has it happened? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that's our prayer today, that you would be our vision. And we hear these words from Jesus that tell us about life that's coming and how important it is to remember that as we walk this life and live this life. Give us, Lord, ears to hear today and give us feet to follow where you might be calling us today to focus our lives on eternity, knowing you and making you known. And we pray, Lord, for those here that are struggling with this, knowing if uh, they believe that Jesus is, is God. Understanding the gospel, realize what he's done to pay the penalty for sin, but it hasn't come home. Lord, open hearts today. Open hearts that your presence might come into people's lives and they would be changed. And we'd see the love start flowing. Flowing out into this world that so desperately needs to see it. So Lord, we offer ourselves uh, to you today and we say be our vision as we head out. Fill us with your spirit to go and live the life you call us to live. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen.